0: Welcome to Dialogue on Teaching, Wabash Center's podcast series. I am Nancy Lynn Westfield, director of the Wabash Center. Paul Myrie, senior associate director, is in the sound engineers group. It is my pleasure to welcome to the conversation Dr. Will Gaffney. Will Gaffney is professor of Hebrew Bible at Bright Divinity School. Dr. Gaffney, so glad to have you in the conversation.
1: Thank you so much for the invitation, Dr. Westville. It's good to be with you today. So this is a
0: complicated time, and it's not that other times aren't complicated, but a complicated time because, because of Black Lives Matter, because of the pandemics, because of the quarantine, because of uh, climate upheaval, because, 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 because uh, to teach Hebrew Bible. So just just Tell us where you are in the conversation. What Are there unique challenges, or does it feel like another day in the life because it is Hebrew Bible?
1: There are unique challenges to teaching Hebrew Bible in an academic context, and that becomes more complicated in a time like this when people are looking for sources of hope and strength and sometimes looking for simple, easy answers, and what— I find with my students is that the answers are not always simple or easy, and that a favorite verse may give the heart solace, but does not necessarily necessarily unpack what is going on in in the world. So an example would be that my teaching focuses on content, content of the Hebrew Bible and Deuterocanonical texts, as well as the context plural. And that's where it gets sticky because we spend time learning to read and interpret these ancient texts in their ancient context to the best of our ability. And that means looking at a text, say in the wilderness story in the larger Exodus saga, not just as it is literarily presented in the wilderness, but looking at it in terms of when that text was edited and put together after the time of the Babylonian fall. So then we're listening to that story as a story about a people living under incredible oppression, looking back to a time when their ancestors were also under oppression, but liberated in a way that was miraculous and attributed to the power of God. So how do those two sets of contexts work together to interpret the text? Um, A verse about divine liberation is heard differently when the people who are, are writing that story are looking for a divine liberation that is not coming in spite of having a wonderful ancestral story like the Exodus. Then we have to talk about what it means to live in a world where you have a scriptural tradition in which God is liberator, but you and your people are not yet free. And so reading those stories with a Black Lives Matter hermeneutics means that it's not as simple as proclaiming God as the God of liberation and expecting all of this to disappear in the morning, but coming to terms with the harshness of the wilderness sojourn and all of what the people were doing in that in-between space on the way to a land of Canaan, which in any biblical reading was not quite the land of milk and honey in spite of anticipation and hope. So working with the Hebrew Bible is a complex notion made even more complex in these times because of an understandable hunger for simplicity, for the power of God. We talk about in my course sometimes the fall of Jerusalem, which was a catastrophic event with virtually no parallel for the peoples of the story. I say that in our world, it would be like the attacks on Pearl Harbor or the Japanese emperor surrendering in a culture that had no concept of that and so you have these wonderful psalms that look back on that and they're heartbreaking like psalm 72 talking about axes and hatchets in the in the temple just tearing the place apart setting it on fire and the psalmist is looking for god and so this is a people who has a, who have a set of stories in which Um, God would send down lightning from the heavens or open up the earth and swallow people. Or if one even stretched one's hand to the Ark of the Covenant on a cart that it shouldn't have been on in the first place, you know, one gets zapped. So where was that God when Jerusalem was being invaded, when people were being butchered and raped and the temple is being razed? That ancient experience of God was not present. And that's, where I think we are in this time of Black Lives Matter. We have these stories, and for those for whom they are religious, we have faith. But we are living in a time where God is not behaving like she used to. God is not behaving like she should. So that means we need to do some more complicated exegesis. And that's what I hope to do in my black lives matter course uh, interpreting the bible in the age of black lives matter i've taught it one time and i intend to teach it a second time so when students
0: often come to classes um at least the first year students looking for the simple right Looking, looking to expand the simple but not disrupt the simple so the, the the complexity of shifting hermeneutics even a new hermeneutic for so many people about Black Lives Matter um, brings the teacher and the student into a classroom with differing agendas. So talk talk about what it what it is to grapple with those differing agendas.
1: Well to some degree it starts in the intro course. I have another faculty colleague and yet another person who also teaches intro. So I'm not the only person who who teaches the students that I will have in my Black Lives Matter elective. But I want to begin my response to your question by going back to that intro, because that disruption you name is really an important part of my teaching. And so we start with uh, the scriptures, the Bible as object, physical object or digital object in these days and times. And we explore what it is, what's in it, and take stock of the fact that in our classroom, by virtue of me being an Episcopal priest and most of my students being Protestants, that we start with two different Bibles with two different sets of books. And then we look at the table of contents of Bibles across history from the very early Sinaiticus and Vaticanus to Luther's Bible, Gutenberg, all the way down to the Aikens Bible of 1782, which is the first 66 book Bible in English. And at that point, they're confronted with the fact that what they thought was the Bible was, in fact, not the Bible, and that Christians all over the planet, the majority of them being 1 billion Roman Catholics, uh, have yet another Bible. So we disrupt expectations about what the Bible is, what the scriptures are on the first day. So that approach uh, carries over. When I enter into the Black Lives Matter and the Bible course, I start with a simple parallelism. Uh, And this question came to me from the faculty of the Austin uh, Presbyterian Seminary when in 2014, which is when I first arrived here in Fort Worth, uh, that was the summer in which Michael Brown was murdered, as I understand his death. And I was invited the next year to answer the question in their annual lecture series, Whose Lives Matter? So I take that question into the Bible and Black Lives Matter course and ask whose lives matter in the biblical text. And we look at the ways in which ancient Israel lives matter because those are the stories of their people. And then we start to look for the people whose lives do not matter in the text. The Egyptians, the Canaanites, often women, particularly foreign women. And then we start to do some womanist work where we look at the intersecting identities and complexities of characters. We look at class status. Are they enslaved or free? We look at their economic standing. Are they widowed? Are they a wealthy widow? Are they an impoverished widow? We look at their ethnic identity and nationality, understanding that race is not a construct that exists in the biblical world, but knowing that people other each other by uh, national identity. And so we use ethnic and national identity as an analog to race. So we look at how all of these factors interact, and then we begin to talk about who matters in the text, who doesn't matter, and why and how those texts can be taught or preached in conversation with the Black Lives Matter movement. And what that often means is we learn to read against biblical Israel, the ancient Israelites, even though the Hebrew Bible is written and edited in the context of oppression after oppression, They are, after all, the heroes of their own stories, and in their stories, they are themselves colonizing agents. And because their stories were used to colonize and settle um, the modern world in which we inhabit and to justify genocide and enslavement, uh, the students wrestle with reading against Israel and seeing how Israel is identified uh, with white American history, and we use The work of Dr. Keller Brown Douglas, who was my theology professor when I was in divinity school, we use her "Stand Your Ground" to set the stage for that.
0: How do you parse the notion of social mattering? Right. So the the that's to me that's one of the issues that rarely comes up in this contemporary time twenty twenty conversation. So we say Black Lives Matter, but then we don't talk about what social mattering is how do you compare ancient times with these times in terms of who, what, is, what does it mean for a society to say what mattering is?
1: I haven't taken up that particular question in that particular way. So when I do talk about mattering, in my discourse, it means which lives are not simply perceived as valuable, but which lives are nurtured and nourished by the systems and apparatus, whether it's the state, the society, culture, pop culture, art, performance, whose being is validated in the construction of beauty norms, in the articulations of what constitutes classical literature or classical music Uh, it's more than representation and as we have become fond of saying recently representation matters but it's more than representation or even validation it's about acknowledging a profound humanity and in religious terms it's about fully recognizing someone as the image of the very same God as an extension of oneself and being invested in their well-being and in their thriving, in uh, interconnectedness where, uh, whether one uses the language of sibling or kinship, uh, recognizing that there is a deep tie and that that person and that culture is not fundamentally other in terms of humanity and human dignity that's what's at stake for me
0: so do, do students hear um these moves in their courses as radical do they just hear it as i don't know what academic bible study is so this must be it you know I mean? do they struggle with how to take it back to their local churches or is there I'm going to say a compromise, right? Saying, "Okay, this is new, but I'm going to roll with it. How do do they react to um, the kind of scholarly moves you make in classrooms?
1: There is such a wide range. I was profoundly shaped by attending Howard University School of Divinity. And I was in a context where virtually all of my faculty were actively engaged in church work as pastors, as staff pastors, uh, roving evangelists and preachers. And so they taught us with an eye to what happens in the congregation when you teach as a professional uh, biblical scholar or theologian in the context of a congregation. That was very shaping for me. And so when I entered into my own teaching practice, I wanted to be very concrete with my students about uh, me serving as a congregational pastor and as an army chaplain, uh, teaching in those congregational contexts. And so that matters to students that they know that faculty are grounded in a congregation somewhere and that these are not simply ivory tower ideas, but that's only going to get you so far. What I have found is that some students go through a period of, I didn't know that. And so I will get discussion posts and contributions in the first month that I'm having to gem- gently shape towards mm-hmm. more critical engagement because they're in their wow moment. I never heard this. I always read this text this way. Mm-hmm. Once we get past that, then there's a wrestling of, what to take back to the congregation and how to take it. And I have had to tell students over the years, it took you six weeks to get to the point where you understand this text profoundly differently. And you got to this point by not only engaging in the course reading, listening to lectures, and talking with your colleagues, but also writing your way through some of what you think and understand. So you cannot go back to your congregation and give a 30 minute sermon and expect them to have the understanding that you now have. A lot of pieces were laid down for you to get there. And as you walked over and through them, you were perhaps not aware of how they were shaping a path for you to come to a new understanding. So I have had to help students frame things better because I have had students who have, gone back to congregations with new and righteous and learned zeal and uh you know the
0: information upon their congregations. yes
1: poked (laughs) a bear in the eye are you preaching now do you preach regularly uh the pandemic has made that less regular uh but i have been preaching in the pandemic at a uh, at a less than usual rate And before the pandemic, I was probably preaching uh, anywhere from once to three times a month. Mm -hmm.
0: And and has the preaching moment changed during the pandemic? Has the the burden on preaching changed?
1: The preaching moment, perhaps the setting of the preaching moment, thinking of the setting of a jewel, Um, and that setting is, uh, whatever our physical or virtual space is, um, and all the technological stuff that goes with it. So preaching is an embodied practice. And I have for most of my, uh, preaching life, preached standing up, I have, um, I broke my knee once and I had a a preaching engagement and I preached sitting down and I had one other injury where I preached sitting down and that didn't feel natural in my body. So when the pandemic started and I began preaching down because of the way my laptop was set up, um, it still didn't feel quite right. It took me a while before I got a standing set up where I was physically comfortable to preach and the technical minutiae of lighting and sound and stability um, were all there. So those things affect preaching because there's simply much more going on in my mind than simply the discourse.
0: And uh, you mentioned just in our setup that our listeners were not privy to um that your midrash book is uh you are uh, making it into an audiobook. tell us about that experience describe to our, for our listeners the book and then tell us about the experience of turning it into an audiobook.
1: certainly womanist midrash is a clamshell book meaning that it has two halves and the first half is a look at the women of the torah and the second half is a look at royal women across Israel and Judah. And in small two to three page units, sometimes a single page, I address translation issues and interpretive issues from a woman's perspective using my own translations. And the midrash part refers to a classical practice of rabbinic Judaism, in which the text is interpreted and the gaps are filled in the text like the names of a character or perhaps a character is given voice. So some of those passages have uh, stories or monologues written in the first person or in the voice of those biblical characters. I was uh, surprised to be contacted by my publisher and notified that the manuscript had been picked up to be converted into an audiobook. And I asked who was going to read it, thinking about the fact that there's some autobiographical material in there, and that it is a womanist work. And it was very important to me that the book be read by a Black woman. And as I was thinking through it, I was thinking, even though I translate Hebrew and put it in transliteration, that is using uh, English letters and spelling words out phonetically, um, I was not clear that whoever they had in their uh, voiceover stable would be up to the task. So I simply asked, can I do it? And I had to uh, audition. I had to record myself reading my own book and, and I was hired. The experience was uh, uh, intimidating in the beginning. Even though I speak for a living, I was very anxious about the recording setup and not messing it up. And of course, there are bloopers, and I had a wonderful sound engineer who walked me through it. But the oddest part for me was reading my book again that finally. I had begun to read it before we started recording so I could get the flavor back in my mouth, so to speak. But sitting in the sound booth and reading uh, with minimal breaks, four hours a day, my own writing. Uh, was a little bit out of body. And I did find myself critiquing myself. There were times where I couldn't figure out how to inflect a particular sentence because I had now decided it was too long and had too many subjective clauses. Um, And that was humbling. But overall, it was an enjoyable experience. I think
0: uh, getting making work accessible, making our work accessible, scholarly work accessible, womanist work accessible um, is what many of us are doing and will continue to be a priority for many of us, that people are hungering for religious scholarship. People are hungering for new ways, deeper ways, more, more complex ways to um, get at the experiences of religion, to get at the Bible, get at all the texts across, across religion. Dr. Wilgathne, I want to thank you for this conversation. It has been marvelous.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Listeners, the Wabash Center website is the place to look for resources on teaching, descriptions for the kind of grant projects that we would support, as well as finding out what the upcoming programs are for faculty colleagues. Also, if you are not on our mailing list, please go to the website and put yourself on our mailing list. The music which we use to frame our podcasts are are the original compositions of Dr. Paul Myrie, our sound engineer. And we are out. How was that, Paul?